Welcome, I'm Linda Apps and you've found the Yoga Nook Podcast, Meditations on Life, Health and Yoga. Today I'm talking to senior Iyengar yoga teacher Pixie Lewis, who's been running the Balmain Iyengar Yoga School for the past 36 years. Can you tell me how did you begin yoga? Look, I began yoga in Florence in 1976 and really I was... Looking around, I'd always been a fairly physical person. I'd done a lot of swimming in my background in high school and in school. I'd done a lot of competitive swimming even. So I suppose I was quite strong, but, um, you know, living in a city and I had a bike and I moved around. I tried a little bit of aerobics. Um, actually, my future partner, but I met him through work and he was telling me about yoga and I thought, okay, that sounds good. And I started, as it happened, we also moved in together and he was sharing a house with another person who was doing yoga. They were pupils of Donna Holloman. And um, and so pretty much from day one, I started doing a couple of things, sessions with, with Michael, with my partner, my future husband, but then I also started classes with Donna. But because everyone in the household got up and did pranayama, then they did practice, and then they did head and shoulders down in the afternoon, that's what I did. So pretty much from day one, I just did three practices a day because that's what, you know, new relationship as well and you just kind of fit in and um, and somehow I just never looked back. It just really worked. I didn't have a lot of ideas about yoga before I started, um, but somehow it just felt really right and I never really questioned it. It was, there were a lot of, hard things about it, but it wasn't so much on a physical level. Well, that's an ideal beginning, really, isn't it, to start with three practices a day? Absolutely. It was an ideal beginning. And I think the other thing that was good about it, I mean, I was 26, that didn't hurt, and I was, as I say, strong in the sense I was used to using my body, but I certainly had never done anything like yoga before. And that's what I was saying, was that the, the physical part I was ready to take on. It was hard. Of course, it was hard. But I, because we practiced every day and I was thrown in the deep end, it just felt, it felt normal to do all those things. I didn't start out, I mean, I started out reasonably soon, uh, I mean, very soon with things like backbends and balancings. That was a different era, there weren't beginner's classes. Um, but also I was just practicing every day, which makes a difference. So I think on a physical level, whilst, as I say, it was, it was tough, it was demanding, it was... You know, it had lots of challenges. But I, what I was referring to before was that I, when I look back, it was really the, um, the mental part of it for me was tougher. It was tougher, the, the no excuses. They're like you're, you know, there's no one but you that you're looking at. No one's making you do something wrong or it wasn't. I mean, I can remember feeling like, oh, how do you expect me to sort of learn these backbends if people are talking in the background and then you realise that that's not really the problem. Um, and that was my, when I say uh, it was challenging, it was confronting. And there was the fact that, you know, I don't think that I was, I've done competitive swimming. I don't think I was a person who sort of looked for easy ways out or excuses. I've done a lot of study. But I think somehow just being nailed to the fact, I think, it, you know what it is? I think it's something about being brought face to face with yourself and you just keep, you see yourself in the good things. And I've often said with yoga that it's like it has a big poster right in front of your face on all your shortcomings, but it also gives you the tools to overcome them. 
So both of those things are very, one's a bit confronting, but it's real. And the other one goes, okay, I can see that problem, but this is what I can do about it. And it sounds like you were right in that pressure cooker from an early stage in your yoga. I was. And I mean, so much so because I was practicing every day and because I ended up working closely with Donna um, Holloman, who was one of the very sort of earliest and advanced yoga practitioners, Guruji, in those days. I mean, he called her daughter. They had a close relationship. And really everything she did, she had learned. She studied in India directly with him, not in a class, but one-on-one. She practiced with him. She worked with him for a year when she was 18, 19, so also thrown straight in. And um, so I think uh, that was... uh, I felt like I had a close connection to Ms. Ryinger quite early on because really she was very, very reflective of what his teachings and early practices had been. And so with Michael, uh, we worked with her very closely. He was already How, teaching for her. By, yeah, what do you mean by working closely with her? We, um, well, after, I mean, we would also practice with her. So I practice every day. We went, I went to two classes a day, but after a month of doing yoga, I did a week's retreat with Donna, um, which was very intensive. It was for more experienced practitioners, so I just sort of threw myself in. She was uh, generous with me. She really brought me along, but as I said, pranayama, half hour, 40 minutes every day, just straight off. And a lot of the time, and Guruji, you know, he says something to me about this, some you know, maybe five or ten years later, that um, I didn't have, I didn't do a lot of that foundation work, but it was really a bit the old-fashioned style. You learnt through your practice. When you reached a problem, you had to work your way out of it in a way. It wasn't, oh, look, well, I won't do those poses because that's just what we were practising. We had a very intensive practice, which was modelled on Guruji's practice, which was modelled on, Gita, uh, on uh, Donna's practice, and... It was just in sort of in brief, it was two uh, balancing sessions a day for Bakasana, uh, for a week, two balancing sessions, two backbend variations, one backbend dropping back Urvadarasana, and then two days a week of forward bends. So that was our practice. Standing poses, although we did them, it was, uh, we did them, and I did them in class because Donna taught them, and certainly I did standing postures but I probably did more of all those other poses. We did them, it wasn't, but maybe twice a week rather than every day, the way nowadays we would do with our new students. They would focus first on the standing postures. And sometime later... Ah, so you had as much weight put on the back bends and the arm balances absolutely, as you did on, as the, on the standing poses. poses. And we balanced out with the, uh, the forward bends, so forward bends and twists. Um, and every day, the um, little long timing and... Shushasana, Sarvangasana, we would do about 45 minutes, sometimes an hour of Shushasana, Sarvangasana every afternoon as well. So um, it was it was a different era. But I think what uh, Guruji said, probably around, I don't know, I think when I went back, that was 76, I started probably, I think it was 83 or maybe 85, he said to me that, and you know, this was as close to it. It wasn't. It wasn't a compliment of what I was, what I knew, or what I was doing, but just of my, I suppose, intensity of application. Probably that I had, you know, that I had a good practice 
base, but I now it was time to go back and unpick some of those foundations and go back and work with some of that. And that was, and that's true, and at that point, by that time, this is now sort of some many years later, or some seven, eight years later, I'd already started some of my first teacher trainings, and that was really good for me in a way. I went back and thought, what is this Mirasana? What is Trikonasana? What are we doing? So in a way, it was almost, I worked backwards then. The biggest turning point of my life, starting yoga obviously was one, but it, it just felt like I fell into it. But going to work two months with Guruji in India in 1977, so I'd been doing yoga for just a year, um, and there were only 35 of us maybe there working. We had Guruji every day, twice a day, um, very intense work. Again, we did standing poses a lot, but we also did backbends and balancings pretty much every day uh, for those two months. And and of course, forward bends and inversions and all those other poses. But um, but it was real sort of working with the master. I was, uh, I found him, of course, like everyone, challenging, confronting and scary, but also tremendously exciting and inspiring. And, you know, somehow he, he was good with me. He really worked me hard and, you know, knocked me about, as it were, I mean, you know, verbally and, you know, made me, um, made it very clear that I didn't know very much. But he also had a bit of humour and a bit of, there was, there was a feel, there was a personal interaction which really, uh, pretty much everything I worked on and still really worked on um, with some developments was ba is based on that. I think the first year with Donna, and I'm not undervaluing it, I value it hugely and I still, you know, a lot of things from there that I still work from. But it was almost like that prepared me for Pune for two months with Guruji and that really felt like that was my uh, real uh, starting or, or really big movement into doing IB yoga uh, in, in, a, in, in learning directly from him. And that, you know, I worked for the next 10 years and then I had small children and I did go back to Pune. Um, but it took four or five years to get back. And I think I just kept, there was so much to learn. It felt like, I, and, and I'm still learning from that first time. Do you know, there was so much that every class he gave, there was so much to learn from. I'm really jealous of your three practices a day. And yeah. I find myself, I get frustrated because I get a taste of it and I would, yes. I want to, but I feel life is just too busy. Too busy. And it's, look, it's true, and I don't practice three times a day anymore. I do on retreats, and when I first started setting up retreats, and they were weekends in the beginning, getting students from Australia in the early 80s to know what, you know, you would come away and spend some time doing yoga. But I would say to them, too, this is kind of, it won't exist in your everyday life. This is the ideal yoga day, you know, pranayama, eat well, practice, two more sessions a day and we would always do that. It was based again on what I had learned on Chushasana, Savangasana, a bit of restorative in the afternoon. Do you and, enjoy teaching retreats? Um, look, I do. I think um, they, are, they are very intensive. They're very intensive for the teacher because I'm teaching three, three sessions a day. I'm also practicing three sessions a day. Not a whole lot of time. You know, by the time I get to the end of the day, I'll have like a a novel or a detective, you know, it's a book. that's where I just take my head away for half an hour before bed. But the rest of the time is very yoga focused. 
But exactly what you're saying is that, you know, I also, even though, you know, of course I, I teach a lot and I practice a lot at, here in my normal life, but of course there are other things, there are your household things and there are other business things that you've got to do. So there, it's also a time when I, it's pure yoga focus for me, I don't have to even worry about shopping or food. Um, but I think uh, out of that, what I recommend for teachers to do it too, I think it brings up, it makes you very, go deep into it as well, and therefore your teaching is deeper and the students are receptive because they're not distracted. So I think a lot happens in that way. So I do enjoy teaching them. I wouldn't do many in a row. I find I do three, maybe in a year, and that's a good amount uh, as, as far as week-long intensive. Goal. I do a lot of weekends, but not so much the week-long ones. Three years is great. And do you think um, it's possible to do a practice with that sort of intensity these days? Look, it's true that there are a lot of time constraints. I mean, it's true, you know, we, we talk about it with, you know, amongst friends as well and family. You know, once upon a time you took your travel to the travel agent and you gave your banking to, you know, then you didn't. Nowadays you're doing all of that. You're paying all your bills on the internet, you're doing all your travel arrangements. And it sounds small, but those things take hours. You're booking your own Airbnb somewhere. That can sometimes take three hours to work it out. So just as an example, there are a lot more things. We work at night. We take our computers home. We, you know, we're always switched on. And that's yes, true. It's a big, it feels like a big sort of falsehood, doesn't it, that we were meant to be freed up to have more leisure time when, in fact, we're just having to do more and more things. Absolutely. And it's expected that you reply to emails. Students will, and look, I'm a bit bad sometimes in responding because some of my colleagues go, look, you don't answer after 8 o'clock at night. But sometimes I've been busy all day, I get back and there's something, someone says, oh, look, I've you know, got some urgent thing for tomorrow. Um, I'm often tempted to just send back a quick email on it if, if there's something urgent like that. But that's a bit of self-discipline in that also is required and we do need to cut back. Because I will say, just on your question of time, um, I have a certain regime or certain way that I work and I've always done that and even when I had small children I've done that which was set up in the beginning and that is that I wake up in the morning and it might be very early if I've got an early start and I do pranayama first thing, you know, get up, wash your face and sit down and do pranayama and then I have a small break, you know, a cup of tea or shower and then I go straight into practice and even when I'm teaching very early I practice before I teach. And the other thing about that is that it means that the rest of the day doesn't get in the way. It does mean I don't often do the afternoon practice because I'm teaching all that's when I'm going to the bank or in setting up whatever we're doing, work for the association or for the school. But, um, and I, you need some time where you dedicate to that. But occasionally I manage a half hour or something in the afternoon when it feels like it would be a good thing to do. But I think that generally I say it's two sessions a day, but I have them mapped out. I don't, I'm not really, I'm not flexible with them. It, it pains me to give that up. I, I will rarely book a private, I did it the other day, it's on my mind. Someone asked me, especially if I ever could I see them at eight o'clock. I'd been up late the night before, so I got up and did pranayama and then came and did that and I had time to practice afterwards. But it's very unusual and the day just doesn't, feel right. The way I walk out the front door is with practice behind That's me. fantastic discipline. 
And I think that early time really set that up. Do you know what I mean? That's what we did. That's what I did right from the beginning. And even when I was still working, I was working as an interpreter. Um, and that sometimes happened. It wasn't eight, you know, it wasn't seven a.m. start, but you had to be somewhere by eight thirty, nine o'clock. I would get up early and practice. It just became so much part of my life, sort of like brushing your teeth, you know, something you just do before you set off for the day. And look, every once in a while when I'm not teaching on a weekend, I take Sunday off. Initially with my children and now with grandchildren and I'll go over and I'll make them pancakes and I feel like I don't need to kind of earn my coffee or breakfast. I'll just get up and I, I change my routine and change is a really good thing to have. But by Monday, it feels like ages since I've done you know, practice and I'm really ready to get back to practice. So that's, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just very much a part of what I've been doing all these years. And in the text, it says uninterrupted practice, doesn't it? And so that's right. I get a sense that it means daily because if you do interrupt it like that, you have yeah. a few days off, you sort of forget or you do you lose lose where you are up I think to. when people are traveling um, I often say and I had to work with that and of course my whole family from my children to my you know, uh, mother when she was still alive and my sisters everyone just knows that's what I do so you know it's just factored into the day that when I'm coming to visit that I'll have I'll get up early I'm flexible of course to that extent I'm not going to make everyone wait to go out the door at 10 o'clock I'll get up very early to do some practice, but it's good because just everyone around me accepts that that's my routine as well, so that's just become part of it. Um, Does that mean you cut short on sleep? Look, I do sometimes, that's true. Um, One of the things that many people will perhaps relate to, and this, I always used to be more of an earlier to bed, because I love early mornings, I'm an early morning person, which is lucky, but... um, I do think now once you have children or when you've got very busy days, the evening, I try not to work in the evening. In fact, I don't want to even, I was never good at studying at night. I, don't, I wouldn't write an article at night. I might, like, nighttime if I'm on the computer, it'd be more for family, a Skype chat with my sister or, you know, and I will just try to take from, say, 8, eight o'clock on dinner time, I will take time out from actual work things. I don't do you know tend not to do anything any work related afterwards but because the rest of the day is pretty much non-stop by the time I get to then I then sit and watch the news at 10 o'clock at night do you know what I mean suddenly it's 11 and then anyway sometimes sleep is a bit short but I think the yoga pays back and I will sometimes running on a normally I do half an hour but you know I want to say this in an honest way too most of my pranayama would be half an hour in the morning if I have an early flight and I'm leaving the house at five, I'll actually do 10 minutes, just something to feel like it, it gets that going. That's not the same, but it's fine. And I think people, it's good to remember that when you're traveling, read something, have a look at the sutras, do something that keeps you a bit in the yoga mind because that just keeps ticking over. There's a something I read many years, oh, some years ago, and it really... Uh, one thing in particular was it was a young pianist. He was youngish. He'd now become quite famous. He'd won lots of awards. He was asked to travel all over the world, and he was being interviewed. And they said, "Well, how do you practice? Do you know, you're traveling a lot. You're on a plane a lot. International travel." And he said, "Of course, you know, the time at the piano was absolutely essential. But he said when he's on a when he'd be on a plane." 
he would actually lie back with his eyes closed and he would play a whole concerto. Um, he would see the keys, he would work with it. And I think in some ways that's true. If, if it becomes so much a part of your daily life, I mean, Guruji, wherever he went, he would, whenever he travelled, he'd be talking about when he went to San Francisco, Udvadhanarasan with the Golden Gate Bridge, and he had you know, everything related back in a way to his practice and to his teaching. And I think anything that keeps you a bit in there, um, when I walk my dog, sometimes I think about sequences or practices. So all that counts, all that, all that thinking about it counts as it well. It does, it does, it does. I think it's true. I think sometimes people have, and it's kind of the mid-years, I call them mid-years for me. I mean, say from the time Guruji really came out, let's say, when I mean, he was nine in the 60s, from the 70s became more and the Institute started. And so let's say that first generation of you know, us that were then starting to run schools and had certainly high expectations of oneself and probably most of us, I would say, would have a slightly, you know, driven's maybe a bit too strong, but certainly a high achieving, some, and it doesn't mean everyone was academic, but something about, a lot of them, one of my senior colleagues started off as an electrician, so he didn't have that kind of academic background, but he is a learner, I mean, he knows everything, he's always reading, he's, you know, he now would, you know, have done, caught up on a lot of the learning that he didn't perhaps have earlier on. So in that sense, driven, what did, you do? what did you do before yoga? Well, mainly I worked as an interpreter, but that's because I went to, I went to university. Um, I had moved to Florence and to Italy, and I needed to spend a year um, doing, I had done high school in America, and that didn't qualify. American high school didn't qualify to enter into Italian university. You had to do, in those days, the, the English exam, the I and A level, so I spent a year bringing up whatever I didn't have that they needed. And by the time I got to university and I was going into linguistics and literature, um, it, was, uh, it was 1968, which was student rebellion rise. University was closed for most of the year. I kept turning up to classes. I did my best. I did a few courses, some quite extraordinary ones, but the whole next year was still really disruptive. And I was, had always been fascinated by language. I'd done Latin and I'd done some Spanish. I'd already spoke Spanish. And um, so I entered the interpreter school, which was a five-year course, pretty full-time. So although that wasn't university, I did my year at university and did my best. But I, um, so I put myself into study there and worked as an interpreter, which was sort of something do, I loved. Do you think that that gave you a fine ear for the Sanskrit for the chance. Definitely. Italian in itself um, is very similar because it's phonetic, so it, it actually is pronounced as it's written. And if you just follow the rules in the Sanskrit, it's exactly, you, you sort of have everything you need to know to pronounce it correctly. So it's obviously, that's, my background is helpful for that because I've got an eye for it and I suppose a bit of an ear for it as well. Um, and I think the other thing in interpreting in languages is, and I spoke to someone, one of my current trainees, who told me the other day that she had worked as an interpreter um, before in the States. It gives you, there's a lot of listening involved. It's about communication. So if you're interpreting, because this wasn't written translation, I did some of that, but this was called simultaneous and then consecutive. So you're either in a conference, we've got headphones on, 
and everyone depends on what they don't understand the Italian, so you've got to um, translate from a few languages into English and everyone depends on you. And all the English speakers there are glued to your words. So you have to give some intonation, you have to make it, it cut down, keep it a little bit more straightforward so that you keep up the rhythm. And it was a really good, I found it really useful. And also you've got to really listen, like what are they trying to say? What's the main point here? What do I have to tell the person who's listening to me? Uh, and then consecutive, which was actually more highly paid and more highly um, skilled in the ways where you might be 10 people in a room. You've got two, in the case initially, two American or English people who are part of this meeting and they own something and they be part of a legal firm and all the rest are speaking Italian. So every two, three minutes they break off and you give a quick summary to the person in the opposite language. So you, there was a lot of skill of listening and communication and I think that's, um, I say to my trainees, teaching is really about communication. You've got people there who want to hear something, they don't want a lot of words, they actually just want to know what they need to know and that's, uh, so it was a useful skill to have. And did it help also when you went to India, when you went to Pune? Because a lot of people find that sometimes they can't understand the and Australian. No, I think, it, I think it did. I was, so I, I mean, as an interpreter, I worked with five languages, so I was really used to, to listening and, and switching my brain into a different, also culturally. There's, and there's something really powerful about mm. listening well, because listening well means that you're opening yourself to learning. That's a really good point. I think that's. I think that is true. And and there's something about culturally. When I say culturally, not just Indian culture, but even yoga culture, that you're listening for. You know what? Not just what's the word, but what are they trying to get across here in some ways? And I think that um, did stand in, in good stead, as did Ishley, because Ishley, I would say, is this kind of younger version or a, a younger sibling version of the chaos and the anarchy that you find in India. So I wasn't that thrown by arriving somewhere where everything was so mad and exciting as India is. And just back to the self-loathing question, do you, oh, think yes. That, yes. Mm. do you think that your generation, everybody threw themselves into the practice? I think, there's, I think, I think there is a, a potential risk is maybe too strong, but, uh, but something to look out for in Iyengar Yoga. I think perfectionism is good, but I think it's also like, what's wrong with me, I can't do that. There is another step to that. And I think if we take that and move on from it, how we can develop ourselves and do something. I was saying about, it definitely shows you all the things you don't like. It's looking in a mirror and going, all right, you know, that extra kilo or that extra whatever. Do you know what I mean? And looking as women sometimes can do, or this is all wrong and we can get very. But if we then thought, okay, I see that, but here's what I can do about it. And if you're willing to take that step, then I think it doesn't have to be a negative thing. I'm saying a risk. I think if you go down that track and, and keep wanting perfection in yourself, in your students, drive them from that idealist point of view, I think that can be damaging in a way also, you know, too. Because and now, you know, we have Prashant saying, do it for your aura. Don't don't be so obsessed with being perfect. You know, you can work no. for years and still not be perfect. Do it do it so that you feel good about yourself now. I think you know, and I perhaps I differed with Prashant, he was much more closely involved with his father and his teacher than I was. But I mean, I would just say, and I've actually had a conversation with Prashant about this, I would have a slightly different take 
on it in the sense that that seems to imply that Guruji required perfection. Think what he asked, he demanded your utmost best. And I found that really inspiring. In other words, he wanted you to be the best possible person in that moment that you could be. And that's not a bad aspiration. Of course, you know, also in Ayurveda Yoga, though, you might be unwell, you might need to do restorative postures, you might need to look after your menstrual cycle. He definitely taught that as well. But I think, I think it was an interpretation of that he expected you to be perfect. But he would go wild if he saw you under committing yourself. You know, his, famously he would say, you know, we would say, I was talking about excuses, I'm trying, and he would just hate that. He'd say, don't try, just do. In other words, the back heel and heel lesson one, I talk about this in teacher training, say, draw the back heel down to the floor, or other than Krishvanasana, you know, bring the heels back, bring them down. Now, not everyone can do that, but you are moving towards that. How do we work towards it? If you just say, I'll oh, just fine, leave them up, don't worry about it, then That's right. people, you know, it's hard. How do you, how do you um, uh, try to bring people, raise the bar on mm. people and bring them to the best they can be yes. without getting it confused with perfectionism or meeting a, meeting a standard or... And maybe that's the art of teaching and the art of practice. I mean, the other thing, since you bring that up, and I think, you know, certainly those of us have been around for a while, also means that we are older. We live in older bodies. We, an older body, as Gita would often bring out. You might have an accident, or you might just, you know, no, something might happen, you break a leg, you hurt something. But age, the aging process will be there for everyone. And you know, for most people, everyone that has some effect, for some people will have more physical, someone else there might be more depression or more mental aspects to it. There will be things to contend with. And I think that has a liberating quality to it. It has, obviously it's confronting things that we, you know, but that's true. We used to do lots of things when we were younger that we no longer find, staying up all night, I mean, on a very banal level, you know. And yes, now yes, something think, funny. Oh, yeah. I hate being this tired, I don't, I don't function well. You know, we, we have a little bit more wisdom about how we would like to, to be in our day-to-day -day life. But I think, um, so, yes, there are things that you have to, when I say let go of, I don't actually think that you don't attempt them. But it's like if you've got a sore neck and as a general pupil, you know, I would say in headstand, if you can correct it, stay up and do that, because it's something to be learned. If with all your efforts or what I'm saying, it's still sore, come down. This is not the day. And I think that's the same if we talk about arthritis, which, you know, some of us will have to work with. Um, and the other thing, as you get older, you realise the things you used to think about those questions getting older or arthritis or any number of things are not quite what they seem when you were 30. In 30 there was just like, oh yeah, you get a bit stiff and you know, and then you think, no, there's more to it than that. So there's something to be learnt about life in that. And in some ways, I think a yoga practice, having to really face those, whether it's the, you know, the changing face or the changing body or, you know, physical or any of those elements that come into it, what it prepares us for death in a not macabre way, but it starts to allow us, or start, we have practice at learning to adapt, do what can be done, not let go of things, 
that you can still do because you think, oh no, that's not quite right for me anymore. But if you keep hitting up a hurdle and every time you do it, it has repercussions that you are not able to balance and contain, then that may be the thing to start letting go of. I mean, Guruji stopped, I don't know when he stopped, in his own practice doing balancing, but he didn't do, they were probably one of the, that and some of the standing poses, I don't mean that he didn't do them, but they weren't part of his you know, twice a week practice anymore. Because back then it's continued right to virtually to the day he died. But um, those were things, it's not just strength, but it's a whole lot of think If that's not bringing the balance and the well-being, then less of those, you know? Keep in them, explore them. There's something to be said about keeping a, an eye on them. And they're like a reference point. Okay, that really is difficult now. My balance is not so strong on that side, or my hip is getting in the way on that side. It doesn't mean I bash away on it. It's good to look at that and go, okay, yeah, that, that's something I'm working with, but not expect that those things will be there forever. Nothing is. We're not immortal. And very sadly, we're not immortal. No, that's right. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe that next stage, though, you know, it does bring, you know, the younger person thinks whoever wants to get old, and as you get old, there are some things about ageing that are not always so exciting. But I think it does bring, we always say, you know, used to, our parents used to say, if I could have the brain I have now and the body I had then, things would be good, but it's not the way it works. So, we'll, so yes, it's an mm. interesting yoga journey though, isn't it? Like it when really we is. start when we're young, we're, we're trying, we think the world's in front of us and yes. we can only improve, we can only improve, yes. everything. I've just got to practice more and everything yeah. will come. And then, and then you reach a point where it's starting to... And I would say, personally, I would say, if I'm really honest, there was a moment around, so I've got some arthritis in, in everywhere, but in particularly restrictive can be in one hip. And when that really came out, it was the first time I'd come across something that I couldn't just fix. I had learned to work with it much more created and more possibilities than I thought would be possible when it first came to my full attention. But there is a grieving process. There is a bit of a grieving of letting go of something that is never going to be gone. It's there. And yet that's, you know, now I look at it and think, I did learn, I have learned some things. I've learned some things about teaching from that. I've learned some things about myself. But that doesn't mean that it's, you know, was joyful at the time. It, like any grief, there's a bit of a process in that. But there's something in, there's something to be learned from that in a good way. I think that has been strengthening. Um, I don't think everyone appreciates I don't think, how can you appreciate it until you go face through it, it. Go through it. Yeah. And so that crucible of yoga that's, mm. that you faced, you were in when you were young, mm. that we're all in, yes. it just continues. But what, but what we're seeing or what we're learning mm. is different, but we stay in that. Exactly. And I think a, a big change for me, it was, it was quite a distinct moment that I remember. So in the beginning I was saying, I did all the back end variations and balancings and I didn't always, I mean I could do them, I was strong, I could keep up, I had stamina, but obviously the finesse or the gracefulness, we're talking about effortless effort, they were more effortful than effortless. Um, there wasn't, you know, probably skill in every action, I didn't understand everything, but I practiced them. And then at one point, probably 10 or 15 years even, maybe 10 years into it, remember thinking, it's not just about getting my foot in Nekapala, Raja Kapitasa, but what are my eyes doing? What's my breath doing? 
Am I balanced? Do I feel well in the pose? You know, there's that grimace, push, grunt, do, go further than we might do that Donna used to call the donkey work. And look, that's not at that stage that we need to want to do something. We need to want to throw ourselves in and try a bit or nothing or whatever. We wouldn't cross the street. But I think you don't want to be stuck in that stage. And I think something, when I started to look at can I keep my eyes quiet? Can I keep my breath steady and still do the balancings and still do the backbend variation? I suddenly had to look at a whole new skill set that I needed to start to work with. So that's a refining that's, and a deepening of your perception. And ab absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And the refinement is the thing that never stops. And even if you're looking at, you know, arthritis and hip, it's a bit restrictive in certain, it can be quite restrictive in certain movements. Uh, how can I work with that? How can I get deeper in the pose? I can't bash my way through it. That's counterproductive. How do I create space? How do I stay with it? How do I work intelligently with it? Um, that's really interesting. When it works well, I feel as rewarded, if you like, I feel as satisfied as when I did everything just with that useful energy and capacity. Um, makes it Everything is just so interesting, it just keeps being so Yes, it does keep being interesting. I know from my own coming, you know, having issues with a sore yes. neck and then and, and initially thinking, oh, you know, that's the end, I'll yes. never do a headstand again. And then, but you work through it and you realise that it comes back and there's, yeah. and you get a strength and a conviction from, from um, encountering those difficulties Absolutely. and those challenges and you realise that there is still heaps to be... And life is full of challenges. Do. Life is challenging from when we're young, when we're teenagers, depending on the lives we've had and the things we encounter, having children and family puts up a lot of challenges. Later on, losing parents and having people around disappear from our lives, um, they're challenges. And what I love about yoga, if we practice it in this way, it's such a tool for helping to deal with all those. Uh, every day we face challenges in our practice and they're kind of in a controlled environment. You know, in a way, it's me and my math and how I work that day. And when something comes from outside, and as I say, you lose a parent or, you know, any number of things that we, tragedies that can happen in our life, we've built up a sort of, you know, a toolbox that we can think, okay, this will pass. How do I work with it? What do I do to get through to the day? How do I deal with that on a mental and physical level? And to me, that's invaluable. And I think that's what, as a teacher, those are things that I would like to be through the practice of yoga. Not, I'm not, you know, I'm not lecturing about them, but how do, can I get students to practice and approach yoga in that way that will do something for them in their lives? It, it is more than the physical, but the physical Guruji's world is what teaches us to pay attention. That's and a starting point. Yeah. And um, would you just describe how your relationship with? Mr. Ayanga? Yeah, uh, look, he was, when he passed away a few years ago, um, it was, you know, obviously it's like I was talking about losing a parent or losing people that are really big in your life. I mean, he changed my whole world. He changed who I was, maybe who I was going to be in some ways. And how just, did he change that? Look, I, when I gave a, a talk when we were in Pune, um, commemorating his birthday, they asked me, a few of us, the senior teachers at talk, we've been around a while, and I, this expression, I don't know if I've said it exactly like that, but 
he kind of burst into my being and he just like changed all my cells inside almost. It felt like there was no way I could go back and be, whether it's excuses or moving around something or feeling sorry for yourself. I mean, all those things, those are normal human traits, but they just weren't really acceptable just to sit and wallow in that anymore. And I think, in that, so in that sense, and then yoga, through his approach, yoga really, it's like sort of putting on glasses, just the world started start to look different as well. So I think in that sense, and, and right from my first encounter with him, and from, uh, from there, his continuing, uh, the way he put himself forward as a teacher and as a practitioner, I suppose, it set high standards. No one's ever has been and probably will be had his you know, approach and his capacity for internalization in his practice. But I think it set such a, um, it's such an everyday standard of he did it through his practice. He developed himself through practice. In other words, he was a self-made person. Do you know? There used to be a very old-fashioned 50s self-made man. Someone who came up without education, he made it in the world. And he did that as well. He became a famous person from someone who came from a very humble background. But that was never his aim or goal. And I think that ongoing development is the thing that probably one of the, the biggest tools that I feel that he gave me through practice. And I didn't know it when I started practicing. I don't think we should tell our students about all these things and load their brains up with expectations. I had no expectations, which was great. I just came into it and saw myself changing. You know, I saw myself having more mental resistance. I saw myself deal with difficult situations more easily. I didn't know how I did it. I had to reflect on it through it happening rather than going, now I'm going to be a good person, now I'm going to be stronger. Um, none of that really came into it. You practiced and through applying your, how to reflect and observe yourself in practice and put yourself to the task every day, those things just, you just learnt them. And I think if there is anything I would like students to learn, it's that the, the application and applying yourself in a yoga sense in an intelligent way where you learn to observe yourself. And by seeing ourselves, if you see something in front of you, you can't help but want to make some change if it's not working. Um, and I think that, uh, that, so that was a big uh, learning And then it's a real spiritual path. Well, it is. And again, that's something that I am probably, you know, some teachers will talk about it more, practitioners more and some less. I feel that it's such a, it's like love or it's like, it's such a personal, um, such a personal experience that, but certainly if I put it simply about internal reflection and being inside in a quiet space inside, someone said to me, probably within the first few years a practitioner said, and it was a bit kind of you know, 60s, 70s, but it really resonated. I think we were doing something as noisy as it was initially, as it uh, is in India. They said, you know, if you go far enough outside, you can project far enough outside, it's silent out in space. If you can go deep enough inside, it's quiet. So that outside noise, you can just move away from it. And I think those sorts of, that's what brings you into a deep experience of yourself, of the world around you, what allows you to perhaps be, have close communication or you know, engagement with another human being, which also can be, you know, if we're talking about love, but also can be on a sort of 
you want a spiritual, some sort of uh, connection that you resonate with someone, you can't do that if you're not available. You can't do that if you're not present. So I think even any counselling, you know, would say first you have to get to know yourself in a relationship, you know, it's relationship counselling before you can deal with another person. And I think yoga just does that in spades. I think that's what it gives us. So it allows us to be a human being that is open to the world, is open to the people around us by observing and being open to ourselves and find out the richness that that is in there. Mm. Although then paradoxically there's a lot of yoga practitioners who aren't in relationships. No, that's Especially true. Especially women. Do you know what? No, no, I do. I mean, I think it is true that we, and look, I think the world is, you know, you look, I look at my you know, children who are now in there coming up you know, to their 30s, even my son is about to turn 30, and especially him who doesn't have children who lives in a different, you know, he's still studying and out there in the world and doing lots of things that he wants to do. And I think their world, as far as male and female, is really much more fluid than ours has been. But I would say, and I think most women, you know, there's been some talk at the Writers' Festival this week about this as well, is that there is an expectation of women how much you know, housework they have to do, how much they work, and they, they do, they try it, they have to do it all in some ways. And I think women reach a certain point, and not just women, I think everyone reaches a point, and that's certainly been true for me, that certain behaviours or certain things around you, you will no longer tolerate. If we talk about domestic violence, there's certain things that all of us as young women, we might have not actual, I'm not talking about even physical violence, but people trying to overpower you, and men in those days maybe, from you know, to their loss as well, would see that as a way of being. When you get to know yourself more, you just think, no, that's, no, I'm not going to do that, I'm not okay with that, and you call it. And that can make maybe relationships more difficult unless you're ready to find some, or unless you are... Fortunate enough, or you find someone else who is also ready to meet you as two equals, and maybe that you know, we do have a path in yoga and the practice. Not everyone understands that I wanted to get up at you know, four or five in the morning and practice. My kids now, who are now no longer children, um, talk about how they found that now, of course, as children, we're why are you, you know, why do you have to practice? And but now seeing that I pursued something in a captain has been so important to me and found that and really inspiring for their own lives and what they do. So I think, you know, find yourself and be true to that. You will have good friends, you will have good relationships with other people around you, with your family, with your children, with your friends. And you know, you may have that and it's with interesting. An yes. And I I remember reading um, you know, Brahmacharya, mm. and um, I read an interview with a priest at one point who said that practicing chastity actually made him more available to love more people. Yes, and sometimes I wonder if that not being con or not being restricted or restrained to one relationship. And look, there are there are really important things in that as well. But I don't think it means not having a fulfilling life. I think it's true. We are more available. I'm more available to my grandchildren being a person of my own. Of course, I've got a lot of other demands on my time in my teaching, but when I have free time, it's time that I spend with them and I find that enriching for me and I know I make a difference to their lives. So that's a, a 
plus. And you know whenever yeah. you are with someone, you're fully present. You're fully present, exactly. And you're able to be aware of yeah. what's going on for them and not all caught up in ourselves. That's exactly true. So I think if we do then, depending on where that comes in and what, you know, what life brings us, if we do have a relationship, it's of that more perhaps fulfilling for both people sort because probably a lot of us have been in less than fulfilling relationships or relationships that compromise is good, but where we actually sold out a part of ourselves. And I think that doesn't help anyone or anything. Um, so being, being available um, in a positive way, I think, is an important part of that relationship question. Do you think it's necessary to believe in God to, to and reincarnation? to follow yoga to its its ultimate goal? Look, no, I don't think so. And I think even the Iyengas would, Guruji would say it doesn't, not everyone has to, and even Geet when she talks. And of course that is, even, maybe even more so, that is a belief system for her and it will come out. Thank you. It will come out in her, um, in her talks about things because that's part of her reality and her life, for example. But never is it said and never has it been said. I mean, yoga, when Guruji would say yoga is for everyone, both male, female, you know, young, old, well, not well, and irregardless of your religious beliefs and convictions. And that does make it, it's not a religion, it's a philosophy perhaps more, rather than a religion. As far as incarnation, God, reincarnation goes, I think, uh, you know, we read the sutras and I think there is a lot to be learnt from that, a lot to be contemplated in that. Um, but I think it can be adapted to one's own. I think, I think it's universal enough and rich enough and, and classical and, and in that sense of, of really pertaining to all ages and people that it doesn't have to be narrowed down. And I think, for, for example, I personally, I don't run my life according to a reincarnation um, philosophy, but I, maybe through yoga, maybe through, you know, as you get older, I'm open to that being a possibility. I'll find out, I suppose, one day at some stage that will come. A bit like, is there life after death? Um, I don't know, and I'm certainly not, I'm not um, fixed on the point, and neither do I think any of us need to be in yoga learning. It has to be one way or the other. It's more open to, let's not close ourselves off to what might be possible, which maybe leads us to be more tolerant of other religions as well. You know, that, that may be, and look, I don't know, maybe what you're saying or what someone is saying about reincarnation, for example, for them, which is a strong belief, is absolutely true. And I, and I don't know, and I'm, I'm open to it being a possibility. But I guess I don't live my life closely according to that. And I just, uh, since Mr. Ayanga died and I've been sort of reading more about him mm. and learning more about him since then, mm. I feel in a way that I know him better now. Interesting, yes. And, um, and it seems that he was a very godly man mm. and he would, he would dedicate his practice to the Lord. And yes. Look, I think that's true and like in all things, including diet and, you know, vegetarianism and all those things that were very much part of their belief as for yoga practitioners, but he always felt that people would find their own path, their own way. He never told people what to eat or not to eat meat and around in my, so in the early times of yoga practice and probably, you know, if you 
think about the kind of practices we were doing early on too, straight off. Um, it wasn't much space for anything kind of heavy in your diet. So even quite dedicated meat eaters just started to not eat meat because it just kind of sat, you're always ready to do your next practice and it just sat a bit heavy there. So it wasn't even, initially I didn't give up eating meat as a philosophy first. I mean, wasn't that drawn to it, I guess, but I didn't, it wasn't about animal cruelty or those things at the time. Over time, I'm quite grateful and happy to have that be part of the fact that I don't harm animals, but I mean, um, but I would never really tell anyone else how they should do it, because I think it really does, I was saying change does happen to you, and if you're dedicated in what you do, you will find, you know, and it sounds a little bit sort of hippie, that you'll find your path, but I don't mean that, it's it's much more raw than that, it's much more, you know, uh, <laughs> uncomfortable. uncomfortable than that, exactly, it's not so sort of floating. But I think um, you just run, for, you know, any of us now, sometimes, you know, even as you get older, some things in your diet change, you think that just doesn't work so well for me anymore. Uh, I think it's more along those lines. So I'm getting back to the belief system that you never require that anyone... But I just wonder that. sometimes if uh, that's sort of Ishvara Pranidhana mm. and whether that is an element that, that, that is a useful element to have in our practice where we're sort of... Um, or maybe that's doing it with love. Well, I think so. I think it's open for each person to put their own fill-in-the-blank themselves. And I think it can be surrendering to, I mean, you know, it could be surrendering to the, to the universe. It can be giving over to something, to something higher than you. And certainly, you know, it's not part of this conversation now, and it doesn't need to be. What I'm saying is that it can be to some sort of, other, something bigger than me, I certainly believe exists. I don't think it's all kind of down to exactly what's in front of me at all. I think it's much more uh, immense than that. But it doesn't really have to, each person can find what they mean by that. I think getting out of our small selves is a quite useful thing to do. So surrendering um, to God or surrendering to something, in other words, it's not just about me. There are more things out there and a very simplified version and then you can go anywhere. And that, and that the, the individual consciousness uniting with the universal consciousness, yes. which then leads us to, you know, we are all one. And it seems to be the better we get to know ourselves, the better we uh, resonate with... I think, that's, I think that's exactly true. And I, I was very much, you know, when I say brought up, because I often use that expression, and I sort of catch myself saying a bit like as you brought up as a young child, but you know, I was brought up in yoga, so it's almost like starting as a child again, even though I was 26. I didn't grow up with, in yoga with an expectation. I didn't have an aim, I didn't have a goal. I didn't read. Donna said, don't read until you have more experience. And then let your reading make sense of your experiences rather than trying to, oh, I read something, oh, that sounds really good. I want to be like that. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to follow non-violence, I'm going to be all of those things. Um, and that's probably something that, you know, people will find. I don't talk as much overtly about philosophy, but I would hope that through the experience of yoga that, that's, that, that you are led to that through your practice. So I don't know that having, I think, meditation or 
Getting inside where you have a moment in Shavasana where you're completely quiet, your mind is quiet, nothing is happening, you're just completely at peace. I mean, that is a very a moment of bliss, of ecstasy, if you like. But the trick in meditation is you're not thinking about it. It's just an experience. But that's not something you can read about. It's not something you can teach. That's something that you have to be willing to be, to open yourself up to. Krishnamurti used to say, he was... And the big when I was first starting and Guruji had worked with him, he said there is no such word as a verb as to meditate. You enter into a state of meditation. In other words, you, you create all these things, you do things or you, you set up a, a set of circumstances around you, practice, yeah, you take your time, for us it would be a yoga practice, and you see where that leads you. You can't go, today I'm going to get really quiet and have a great shavasana. Pranayama today is going to be blissful. It's not at all often the case, um, but sometimes it is. And I think it's that that teaches us something about God or infinity, and, but it can only come through experience. The mind will allow us to say, yep, that might exist. If you've never thought of it, you may have nothing to articulate to yourself about, but I think it's good not to have a, a goal. It's good and just that, to watch it happen. And it is that experience that can make you more receptive to the concept of soul, for example. Absolutely. And, and, and ponder it and wonder about it. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I didn't really, I wasn't religious, I didn't have that. And now those thoughts sort of, and that's a good preparation play as we get older, you know, for whatever is going to happen to us next, is just to be open to those thoughts and those reflections. But I think it's like, uh, if you have children or around children, but you know, particularly as a parent, don't really want to look, I don't think, look at this little baby and go, this person's going to be, I think he's great, they're going to be brain surgeons, they're going to be whatever it might be. You just want to develop them and nurture them and make them good and whole and maybe have some sense of themselves and a good, strong sense of themselves so that they can be whoever they need to be. And I would say that's true for us as practitioners and maybe as teachers, just to allow, to make space for everyone to learn to have their experience. But that is quite concrete at the same time. You have to draw them in. You have to have skills to draw them into themselves and make that a possibility. And teaching really, I think, is about bringing them into that experience and space. And do you think, uh, you know, as Mr. Ayanga said, that yoga is an art and a science and a philosophy, do you mm. think that yoga teaching is really recognised as much as it should be for, for the incredible art that it is? No, I think it's not, and I think sometimes, you know, we all know as more senior teachers that people sometimes approach coming, they want to be less in Ayanga yoga, but it still happens, they want to be a teacher, and they're not really... You know, it's that thing out of the magazines, the lifestyle, or, oh, I'll get to go to nice places, or I'll lie on my mat a lot. And it is so, it's a big responsibility. It is like, and I, Guruji used to talk about this, and I didn't get it at the time, but it really is like having family, like having, not in a personal way, I don't enter into my people's lives, I don't even know a lot about some of their individual lives, and I don't need to, but in a sense of trying to sort of bring up something whole, it's a big responsibility. You, um, people have to, I think as yoga teachers, that's an important thing to take on. But and you've in a way, the sanctity of all the, 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 the duty or the, the important responsibility, I think that's the word I'm looking for, the responsibility of that role. 
And you've certainly taken that on with the association and you are nurturing the whole Iyengar community through your teaching and your teacher training and, yeah. the, and the work that you've done in the I association. I think that has become, I think one of the things we spoke of as colleagues recently in one of the Junior Intermediate 3 uh, assessments recently was that, and even in the Junior Intermediate 2, that, you know, in, in that in our circles, in Iyengar circles, has a certain meaning, all of those levels. But it means that at a certain point that you're not just thinking about your place in your school, but you start thinking a little bit of the wider community. And uh, as we get older as teachers, and we're not you know, ready to jump ship at the moment, but you know, we are conscious of the fact that we are getting older and there's a new generation to come through. And because it's so been so um, such a huge thing in my life and so immensely important that that is something that I would like not to see lost. Now, as Guruji himself said, it's not in his hands, not in my hands or any of our, my colleagues' hands exactly shape it, but certainly we want to give it our best shot to help to have this, to have the, the importance and um, what the possibilities that it brings available for ongoing in future generations, even when you know Guruji's no longer here, when Gita's no longer here, um, when those of us who you know are now getting older, you know, another 20 years, when we're no longer in this teaching capacity. Um, I think what we're really trying to pass on, and I get back to that always, is an experience of something that does change the world. And even beginners, they come in if you can give them. They just get a glimpse of something. I didn't know what it was when I first started. But something happened and, and I didn't even make the conscious decision. I said, yeah, I'm going back. I'm going to do more of that. And you don't need to be able to put words to it. That comes later, I think. I would like to know just a little bit more about your history. Like, were you born in Finland? I was not. I was the youngest of four and my family moved away to the States when, I, when my mother was seven months pregnant. So you know, kind of finished, but, <laughs> but I was born in the States, and then I grew up, they moved a year after I was born, they moved to the Bahamas, so I grew up in the Bahamas, in Nassau, till I was 16. Oh, that must and have been lovely. It was an amazing place, you know, my whole physicality, I suppose, is a very physical place, you know, those tropical uh, environments where, you know, you're always outdoors, and you're always in your body, it was a great place to grow up. Um, Mentally, you know, you, as sort of, there weren't great schools in those times, a small island, so I, I went to high school in the States, but then at 16, I, we, well, I went back, I went to Italy and started studying there, and then my family um, also moved over back to Europe. So, um, and my, but all my, my older sister still lives in Finland, my grandmother, my aunt, when they were alive, cousins. Nieces, nephews, they're all, so I have, I have a big Finnish connection still. Although I never actually lived there, I visited a lot, but I never actually lived there at the school there. And, and what, what's in the future for you? How do you see your next plans? Um, look, I think it's, uh, it's an ongoing development. I suppose I now look at, sort of look at, I was, when I turned 65 last November, I thought of a kind of a five-year plan. I've never really, had, um, and again, not only hit me away, it's just kind of the next door just opened up, the next door, and then suddenly there's a certain point in which you do have to start making a few plans, you know, making a few plans in the sense of, you know, am I going to 
buy this, a big house or will I live in a smaller place but now I don't need, I don't have children. In that sense, I mean, you have to start reflecting more the reality. What's useful to reflect the reality around you. So I would say, you know, if someone asked me now, I would say for the next five years or until I'm 70, this is just kind of broad brush plan, I'll probably be doing exactly what I'm doing now. Um, and then when I'm 70, I'll have a review and see do I want to teach as many, you know, regular classes. I love teaching in a school. I think that whole development, the day-to-day, and in this sort of environment, um, when it's, you know, it's not so open as some yoga schools might be, but in our tradition, typically, you know, you know who's turning up, you're developing something, you're trying to, you're really trying to communicate and get them to have something of the experience that why you found it such an important thing. And I guess that's what we're getting across. So it's some, so I don't want to stop what I'm saying is I'm not ready to sort of suddenly not be in the school, but I might maybe teach a few less regular, maybe I wouldn't do as many beginner classes. I don't know, I love teaching beginner classes too. But I'm giving myself in our world, and especially when we do workshops and teach and travel, our plans are made a few years in advance at least. So I think probably a few years before I'm 70, I kind of think about it and then, so that's my plan, is to wait, but I don't. You keep going the same, pretty much. <laughs> keep going the same, but just, you know, the reality of there will be times, you know, as you get old and I just begin to understand it, I remember my mother was very vigorous and energetic sort of person, but suddenly she thought, oh, look, I'm going out at night. This when she was kind of 85 or so. Maybe I'll have a little bit of a read and just kind of lie down in the afternoon, which she never used to do. She said, no, I'll just enjoy the evening more if I... So <laughs> I think... I'm doing that already. I, oh, look, I know, I know, exactly. But I, so I think about, you know, in that sense, things will... I don't want to be pushing through and being exhausted and, you know, got a little bit of this croaky voice now and I have to move house and you begin to think, all right, you have to balance yourself a little better. So what I'm really trying to say is that I think, you know, things will hold up for a few years, but then I will review it to find what's an intelligent balance to have of how much, you know, I'm out there and practice time, a little bit of time to, you know, to read and reflect and maybe write some things. But I'm, you know, I don't think it will change dramatically, but it will pair back and I will try to balance it. But yeah, because you are right. amazing. You seem so indefatigable, indefatigable. I mean, even today you're croaky and you've got a sore throat, but you're doing the arm balances with us. Yeah, I, look, I generally, um, there is some sort of zeal and enthusiasm that does carry me through and I have always been able to rely on a certain amount of stamina and resilience. I am noticing now that occasionally I tip the balance and, you know, we'll get some virus or something that turns up and I think, all right, I need to start paying attention. It hasn't, um, it hasn't yet got in the way hugely, but it does occasionally. I just noticed that, you know, we, that I'm not immortal completely, as you were saying. <laughs> and when I spend all day, my days off, I spend time with my grandchildren, which I really enjoy, but the others, a few days ago, I went to my first movie in a few years, and I thought, that's good, I could do that a few times. So, balancing out. But I, you know, I, I think the yoga also really does help give you resilience. And it doesn't mean that you don't get a bit sick sometime if you tip the balance, but it does mean, I think it gives you things, reserves in the bank, something to draw from, um, as well as some sort of mental resilience that even if you're not feeling 100%, 
there's something that you know that, that comes up there's some energy that yoga brings up you can't abuse that and if we do abuse it it's that old peril and it's a process and we get a bit sick and we think all right pay attention and what do you do to rest um i mean i'm a person probably always have been we talked about relationship i do like time to myself and that might be you know just time to i don't have a particular thing that i need to do but it might be walking my dog but it might be covering at home it might be taking time for the newspaper and i do crosswords um i like my morning crossword i always make time i have before i teach or before i do anything i've got time after practice for 20 minutes it's a paper i factor that into my time schedule so um I think recharging my batteries is a bit time on my own to do whatever it is that it feels like. You know, it could be cleaning the house, it could be reading the paper, um, just time to myself because I do. Um, it's it's a very outgoing thing that we do. I mean, there's an extrovert, and you do need to be extrovert in that moment. You need to be there for other people, and and to listen to them, and that's good. And, and also be an empath, I suppose. Yeah. So there's a danger that you take on too much of everybody. And so just to go and kind of clear out and clean out and just get back to myself. And practice gives me that. So my everyday practice, my pranayama practice is absolutely, I'm not a big joint practitioner. Um, there are a few people that I practice with, but it's not a chatty kind of practice. It's just that oh, we've got a similar sort of rhythm or sometimes there are people that have come up for me who are also then colleagues. and. Um, you know, we, we sli uh, slip into a similar rhythm. I'm not a person who, I don't, to me it's, it, it takes my energy away to sit there and chat through it. It can happen. To be in a know. group practice. To be in a group practice and talk and work through things. I've just been a little bit more of a lone practitioner. So I really relish that time for me. That's, and I, That's I don't know, what I'm going to do as I get older because I so much teach from what I experience and practice and I don't just mean the nuts and bolts of take the arm but something that that gives me is the thing that really feeds my teaching and so for me to kind of turn up in a class without having touched into that um, just doesn't really I don't do that much so that's um, so I guess what do I do I have a child to such an early time for, for all its tragedy which of course it was it was also just changed my whole way of looking at life you know that horrible things happen but life goes on and that people through that period were so kind um that life is still a really good place to be in and i think and you know being around Ayanga yoga around guruji was like that too it was harsh and it was confronting but it also was so uplifting at the same time so those things came together at a similar sort of time i was just starting yoga must have been horrible for you. It was, it, it was, you know, something, I'm um, seven, um, so, you know, you're not really, I had a whole lot of life, I was certainly never had a death experience, particularly my stepfather had And died. that was your first child? Uh, first child, exactly. But I think, um, it really, I think what was astonishing, I, and I do say this to people, my experience of it was, and this will be, perhaps be strange, but having done lots of back things, the uplifting, the only way I could get to my child's funeral was to do 10 little vidanarasanas before walking out the door. Really, I only know that I would have got out the door otherwise. So using yoga as a tool, I don't have been doing yoga, I don't know, two, three years, by then three years maybe. Um, 
that uh, so maybe I was 29, but uh, the sense of the tool that it could be, that the strength that it could give, as well as the confronting, knock you, you know, um, uh, you're, not, you're not perfect side of it, but certainly it, uh, it gave that, it, it really came to, into its form, into, into its own, and I think I weathered that. Um, takes years of reflection, really, to, to work through something like that, I think any death does. Um, but there were so many things that were new, and you know, I was young. But uh, yoga really helped me through that, uh, just by giving me something so strong, something of myself. We talked about earlier. Who am I? This has happened. What does that mean? You know, what have I done? Sort wrong? of centers you. Centers you and allows you to just keep going until your kind of the life juices start flowing back, until you can start being something different again, a little bit more full again because you kind of emptied out, and then bit by bit, you know, the, really I call the life forces come back until you feel like, yeah, it was fun, I liked it, that, and, you know, something changed. Um, but how to get from the moment of death to being able to function, um, that's something you kind of need some sort of path to be on, I think. Sometimes people have it in their, people who are around them that teach them that, and I certainly, you know, had yoga to to guide me through, just to give me something to focus on while I weathered the storm. Yeah, life is definitely, um, we get the full spectrum of experiences thrown at us, don't we? Mm. And we sort of, until we come up face to face with one of a difficult experience, we don't really no. acknowledge them or know that Absolutely. they're there. It's kind of like managing our lives, isn't it, in a way? Do you know what I mean? The ups and then the downs and where to go in between and where do I go and where do I need to stop and just stand still for a moment uh, and I think that's why and I do often use the words yoga as a tool but I think that's it can be used as a tool rather than a stick to beat ourselves with or something casual doesn't really something do that much. fills us up from underneath that's right rather than comes down from above and that's that's right exactly the other thing that strikes me um, is, is how amazing Mr. Iyengar is. What he created in the class was this energy that just went and went until you were doing the best pose that you, you never, you know, you could, for the next five years, you were trying to get back to that Ardhachan that you did in class with him. And it wasn't because he adjusted you and he just brought you into the space where you were just flying. Wow, it's effortless, you know. And then, as I said, you couldn't. Take you years to think, what, what was it? Why was that so amazing? You know, John Schumacher once said, and I thought he's, uh, it was really a good point. This was some years ago, and we were having some conversation. And he said, uh, he said, you know, so people ask me, is, is he your guru? Is he your teacher? And he said, absolutely. He said, look, I don't agree with everything he says. I don't agree with everything he does. But he said, every time I work with him, he transforms me completely. That's my guru. Like, he transforms me. Forget it, I, I don't need to talk politics with him. But does he change who I am? Does he break through stuff inside me? Absolutely, that's your teacher. Thanks, Pixie. That was Pixie Lillis from the Balmain Iyengar Yoga School. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Catholic priest and Iyengar yoga teacher, Father Joe Pereira from India, who has mixed the principles of Iyengar yoga with those of Alcoholics Anonymous to create programs to help people with addictions. Everyone can do yoga, you just need the right props. You'll find them at www.iyogaprops.com.au To find an Iyengar Yoga School in your country, go to the local Iyengar Yoga Association. 
In Australia, go to www.ayengayoga.asn.au. Thanks for listening. To subscribe to this podcast, go to www.yoganook.com.au and follow the prompts. Thank you.